Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about critical theory, fact, fiction, or fallacy. And joining me today to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? Going well, John. Thanks. And back by popular demand, we have two special guests. First up, we have Dr. Matthew Arbo, who is Associate Professor of Theological Studies at Oklahoma Baptist University and was on our episode entitled Critical Theory and Ethics. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Arbo. Glad to be here. And we also have Dr. Scott Coley, who's a lecturer of philosophy at Mount St. Mary's University and the director of the Global Encounters Program. And he was on our episode entitled Understanding Critical Theory. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Coley. A pleasure to be here. So on the day of recording, this is Epiphany, January 6th, and of course, earlier today, there were a number of rioters who stormed the Capitol while Congress was meeting to certify the Electoral College votes. It has been a sickening day for many of us. Um, And I think as we have this conversation, it's important to name the day in which we are discussing this and to think about what we all observed, especially the very uh, blatant example of white privilege. It's impossible not to draw a contrast between um, like Black Lives Matter protests outside of DC offices and institutions and sort of militarized highly armed police, you know, um, sort of uh, armed steadily up the, up the staircases, definite shows of force, uh, definite display of detrimental power. Uh, and no such policing was on display today, even though protests had been going on for several hours, if not days. And then there was no immediate interventions once, <laughs> once individuals who were not supposed to be in the Capitol um, did occupy the Capitol and some of its inner recesses. Um, and it's, it's just baffling um, that anything like this could happen, um, particularly since 9-11 and the Patriot Act and the, the establishment of Homeland Security. I mean, it just, it seems, it's unthinkable that um, Congress um, could be occupied essentially by protesters. Um, and that there wasn't any like, I didn't see many arrests, if any, even though there was bloodshed. Um, and this, it, it, as others have remarked, it's just, it, it's unthinkable that this would have occurred at a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, not only would they have not have gotten to the door, but there would have been mass arrests. Uh, and, but that's not what happened today. And it's, it's, it's really difficult to draw any other conclusion than that these were not uh, minority citizens uh, assembled at mass in front of Congress. I think that justice is an important feature of the law that Paul says is written on the heart of every person, whether they know God or not. And so uh, I think when injustice occurs, people outside the church are going to protest that injustice. When the church, and in this case, I think we're describing. the conservative white evangelical church fails, utterly fails to speak to uh, injustice that violates that law that's written on every human heart. Uh, What you will have is people outside the church drawing attention to it. And uh, this example where we've got the contrast, right, between uh, how 
uh, white citizens are treated, many of them bearing arms, I believe, versus uh, how African-American citizens are treated is morally outrageous. And what we see is um, an attempt uh, based on general revelation to uncover and call out injustice. And rather, rather than saying, uh, rather than church saying, um, uh, oh, we'd like to provide a better explanation of this. We'd like to provide a better story. Or we'd like to take what's true from this and, and use it to build you know, a better society. The church has um, failed to call it out and, and is essentially now complaining when people outside the church call it out. And that's um, regrettable. And that's what brings us here, I think, you know, to have this conversation about critical race theory. <laughs> yeah, well, we wanted to bring you guys on because in part just by popular demand, because your episodes were just really enlightening and insightful and helpful, I think, um, particularly for the time in which we find ourselves. But we wanted to bring you guys on to address head on a lot of the critiques about why critical race theory is so wrong. There's been a lot of talk in the evangelical world about the dangers of critical race theory, about how critical race theory is incompatible with the gospel, how it promotes a different worldview and even a different kind of religion, all these different things. Um, and we've seen some big statements made from big leaders and things like that. And a lot of the talking points can, can be very similar to one another. So We've compiled a list of the basic ones, and we want to play a game. We're going to try to make this fun. Game is called Fact, Fiction, or Fallacy. Um, and so what we're going to do is throw out, uh, John and I are going to take turns throwing out these different objections that we hear um, to critical race theory. Again, these objections don't necessarily come as quotes from one particular person. Usually they're just kind of what is generally objected to. Um, and then we'd love to hear you guys tell us, is this fact? Is this fiction? Is this fallacy? Is it a mixture of all three or two of the three? Um, and then, and just get your thoughts on, on how to address these things in a productive way and to think about things in the light of, of scripture as well. So I'm going to go ahead and start with the first one. It's commonly said that critical race theory comes from an ideology that denies the possibility of objective and universal truth claims. So they typically, the, the accusation is that critical race theory embraces what's called standpoint epistemology, which claims that members of oppressed groups have special access to truth because of their lived experience of oppression. Uh, and the stance is presumed to be particularly dangerous because it undermines the function of scripture as the final arbiter of truth. So this is really an, an epistemological question here. Um, fact, fiction, fallacy. I would say it's a casserole uh, of all three. So I, I, have, I have three points here. The first point is uh, sort of general point about the nature of, of this and some of the other sort of objections, right? So one thing that complicates these discussions is that there are people involved in the conversation whose only interests uh, in the discipline, and this happens with a variety of disciplines, could be critical theory, anthropology, sociology, what have you. In this case, it's critical race theory, right? Um, their only interest is to discredit it, right? Uh, so they find some, some truly exotic claims 
and say, see, this is what critical race theory says. Uh, when in reality, uh, perhaps only a, a small subset of critical race theorists endorse the claim in question. Um, and it isn't really integral to the approach. So that's a fine strategy if your goal is a, to wage a public relations campaign. Um, but it's, it's a really terrible strategy for understanding something, right? Uh, okay, so that's the first sort of general point. Second point, uh, there may be some critical race theorists who deny objective truth, but that's not what STEM point epistemology is. Uh, and it's certainly not a core tenet of uh, critical race theory in general. Uh, it's really just an un unhelpful caricature. Uh, so although there might be some quote somewhere from some critical race theorist that posits some version of what philosophers would call metaphysical anti-realism, right? There's no objective reality. That's not the point, right? The point is that standpoint epistemology in general is grounded in the rather uncontroversial notion that perception of reality is mediated by perspective, which includes things like experience, uh, background assumptions, values, et cetera. So standpoint epistemology holds that a diversity of perspective tends to disclose problematic background assumptions, bringing us closer to objective truth, which exists, right? Uh, especially in, in the context of truth claims about social relations. Okay, final point. The notion that critical race theory threatens the authority of scripture by doubting the possibility of objective truth, of course, depends on this bogus supposition that standpoint epistemology denies the possibility of objective truth. So once we dismiss that caricature, there's no reason at all to think that standpoint epistemology undermines the authority of scripture, at least not for the reason given. So there are different perspectives on truth in general, and there are different perspectives on the truth contained in scripture. Of course, this doesn't mean that all perspectives are equally valid. Some might be total, totally inadmissible, right? But scripture has layers of meaning, and it admits of a range of legitimate interpretations. Um, this, this should all be totally uncontroversial. Yeah, I don't, I, I agree. Sorry, I, I agree with all that. Uh, I think the only thing, uh, I just add that, um, I, I mean, I take it that anybody who really and sincerely endorses CRT, that this is what most defines them, um, make claims that they think other people might believe, you know, like they write books and uh, hope that other people read those books and find something persuasive. I mean, they're, they're doing something on the fundamental assumption that something they're saying is true, right, or more true than it is false. Okay, so that's that's one thing to add. And then uh, the other is that, um, I mean, of course, as Scott was mentioning, it's the case that um, someone who has a unique past and background um, and, daily, uh, and daily experience may have something to offer that a person who's background is quite different and whose daily experience is quite different, um, that they do not, you know, um, that just, which is just to say that we have different kinds of lives. <laughs> it's that, and that kind of claim is not a rejection of the fact that true, what is true is true. <laughs> you know, um, it just means that people have different experiences and a lot of that experience can say things a little bit differently than other people. Uh, but everything, I agree. Absolutely. Everything Scott said. I, this sort of, um, it puts, it puts me in mind of one of the things that enticed me to the study of philosophy, uh, which was growing up in church and hearing like preachers say, you know, these postmodernists, they deny there's objective truth. Well, that's a truth claim. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking like, it sounds like, like you're making it sound like those people are really dumb. <laughs> I, I, it can't possibly be the case that they're that dumb. Yeah. Yeah. And of course they're not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And then you start studying philosophy and you learn that almost nobody's relativist. 
That's like no, oh no, it's, it's no, no, no. The worst thing you can be is absolutely relevant. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's like if you if you if a consequence of your position is relativism, then you lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a big problem here is the the idea of the notion of truth in general that, or at least epistemically, we think that either you arrive at truth and the objectivity of truth by having this God's eye view of reality. So it stands over and above human experience and it kind of looks down upon the system of truth as a whole. Or if you can't assume that position, it's just bust. <laughs> like Truth is totally subjective and there's nothing actually objective about it whatsoever. Um, whereas even what we see in scripture with the point of having different genres, different uh, perspectives, different people, different authors writing, and they're all looking at it from the reality of their lived experience, which doesn't preclude them from truth, but actually is what dis it, truth discloses itself via the human experience. I mean, that's the point of the incarnation, right? Mm. Uh, that truth comes to us embodied as a person situated uh, in space and time and discloses itself to us. And so why we think we have to like reverse that in order to make some sort of claim of objectivity. So Whereas I think a lot of times people make this an issue of a, a war for objective truth. That's not actually what's going on here. It's really just a question of, do you think that you're getting at objective truth by claiming to assume some sort of God's eye perspective over reality? And that's actually really, really problematic if so. And in many ways, it's hard to reconcile that with the way scripture presents truth to us and also the way that we live out truth as members of the body of Christ, um, diverse people coming together. So I think that's, that's super helpful to, um, what you guys have both outlined there. And, and also, uh, Scott, you kind of mentioned this too, critical race theory. It's really all about uncovering truth. Mm. They're all about disclosing and ferreting out and unearthing what lies hidden beneath the surface. They're not trying to make the claim that this stuff is just made up. They're actually like passionately arguing that this is the reality of things that is being finally disclosed. Mm. This is not an issue of a denial of objective truth or an embracing of relativism. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah. All right. So fact, fiction, or fallacy. Critical race theory reduces everyone to oppressor and oppressed on the basis of race and locates oppressive and destructive motives in one race of people as opposed to the whole of humanity. I'm aware personally of no advocate for CRT who holds with this kind of rigidity to the oppressor and oppressed. There could be, and, and I don't know, you know, they're, they're, like Scott said, there are some more exotic views. And when you think you found an exotic view, chances are there's probably, you know, a more exotic view out there, um, bordering on the risque. But, the, but, the, but this is not, um, I, I don't take it that individuals who um, are scholars that are, that are interested in working on uh, or within critical theory, or in this case, critical race theory, um, want to hold to these sorts of absolute rigid um, categories in part because they start to break down once you actually examine human life and uh, if you want to take one particular category of oppression say on the basis of race well it happens that we're also other kinds of beings you know we also have other sorts of roles and um i could you know a person could be african-american for example and run a company 
you know, um, and, and in which case the power relations that they, they, they um, have throughout their day is much more complicated. So that, that, I mean, that's just one obvious example, which makes the, the more rigid way of um, deploying that categorization a little un, unwieldy and really just not very useful. Um, so that, but that's my sense um, that it, it doesn't really have to be so, um, so firm and rigid. Well, so I think it's the concern. I mean, you, you might you might uh, sort of reasoning by analogy, right? You might you might sort of go sit in on an accounting class and say, well, gee, all these people want to talk about is like numbers and accounting, right? I, I mean, one of the one of the sort of central concerns of critical race theory, yes, is this oppressor oppressed relationship. But let's let's stipulate for the sake of discussion that uh, indeed critical race theory does hold uh, that you know everything can be viewed in, in terms of these oppressor oppressed relationships that follow along uh, racial lines. Um, and and let's stipulate further, just for the sake of discussion, that um, we're just interested in figuring out what we can what 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 we can learn from this method of analysis. That might be true, right? Um, so so uh, that I think might engender this sort of more charitable gloss, uh, which may or may not describe how critical race theorists actually view their own work. Um, but but this oppressor oppressed view of things. Um, it, we might think of it as a heuristic, right? Which is a, a mental model that enables a theorist to follow a line of reasoning without having to account for every complication or exception, as Matthews you know, rightly points out, uh, that, that comes up in the ordinary course of human affairs, right? So for example, economists reduce everyone to rational satisficers. Right, a lot of present-day economists, uh, in order to build their economic model. No actual human is a rational satisfactor. Does that mean that all observations of economics are illegitimate or useless? Of course not. What it means is that we can't uncritically accept the deliverances of economic theory as a, a map of the actual world. No one suggests we shouldn't study economics, right? Neuroscientists reduce consciousness to neurons and chemicals. Engineers and architects make believe that there are parallel lines. I could go on. <laughs> and I don't, that's right. And the bit about um, motives, that was the second part of the question, too. And I don't think that um, critical theorists uh, have, I don't think they're that fascinated with what motivates people to do X, Y, or Z. I think they're more interested in making plain the sort of material factors that are part of a phenomenon. And then in laying those bare, you can speculate as to the possible motives. But it's not like, I don't, I don't get the impression that critical theorists, you know, if you go like the Horkheimer Adorno, they're not wandering around like wondering why everybody's doing what they're doing. They're much more interested in doing something else. And then if you see what this thing is that they're doing, they're pointing out, well, then maybe you can reach a judgment um, about possible motives. But it's not fundamentally what critical theory is interested in. Yeah, and I think as both of you guys said, there's there are fringe people, there are more of the exotic voices out there that are doing things. I mean, for sure, as evangelical Christians, we certainly don't want the most exotic <laughs> representation of our group to be the one that is what everybody caricatures us as. But in addition, it, it just goes to show, as Scott was saying, that critical theory is a method of analysis. And it's it's one tool among many. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it obviously like with any tool, it becomes problematic. If you reduce everything to that one thing, then you can't do anything else. But if you throw out that tool as being inherently evil or inherently wrong, that's, that's problematic because we seem to know how to recognize ways of using other tools without reducing everything to them. Um, being able to have a wide variety of tools that we use to analyze things in different ways. And, and I think that that speaks to, to the way in which, uh, how this conversation has played out, particularly in um, the SBC. And, and I, I guess I'm given to understand in other corners of sort of conservative white evangelicalism is that the worries, the hand-wringing over critical race theory uh, is sort of inexplicable unless, and on further investigation, this does in fact seem to be the case, right? Uh, Unless critical race theory is sort of a proxy for all discussion uh, about race and systemic injustice, particularly around race, that all, all such discussion that poses a threat to the established order. And so you take some of the more sort of abrasive or extreme claims or rhetoric of some critical race theorists, and you say, well, look, see, people who talk about systemic injustice, um, they think all white people are evil. I mean, incidentally, Christianity posits that all people uh, in general. Uh, or simple, but you know, yeah, I mean, I, and so I, I think a lot of the conversation sort of serves as a distraction from substantive issues uh, that are that really you you just need to study history and ask some questions about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. And I'm afraid that a lot of the folks on the uh, sort of anti-critical race theory, um, but really anti-discussion of systemic justice side of this equation, what they are resisting is the objective moral truth that there are things that people deserve and there are things that we owe to each other. And there's no getting around that. And if the church doesn't take a position on it, then what's going to be left is uh, folks working with general revelation. And shame on the church if all the church can do is just complain when it's completely abdicated. So this leads me to our next objection in our game of fact fiction or fallacy um this is a really common one we hear thrown out a lot that um critical race theory is incompatible with the gospel so it's incompatible with a christian worldview and typically what's meant by that is that critical race theory makes transcendent uh, it's a comprehensive ideology that makes transcendent truth claims about creation humanity and the social order that stand in diametric opposition to the gospel. What do you think? Mostly, mostly false. So um, I was thinking about this a bit, um, a related point a bit today, as I was trying to think about something we discussed previously, which is how 2020 became the year of the pandemic and CRT, among other things. And um, it, it got me thinking, and how you know, I, I tried to try to narrate to myself how I saw this happening, and how CRT became what it did. And Scott's mentioned a couple of things already that sort of I think bring that what what's going on to light. So one thing I want to say is that yes, critical theory um, emerges from 
a tradition of Marxism, however young uh, it is when it emerges. But Marxism isn't the only um, ideology to interrogate the material conditions of human life. Okay, so that, that needs saying, I mean, you can read just, just a, an obvious example, read Machiavelli's Prince, right? Or, or something else in the Renaissance. <laughs> you know, there, there are heaps, heaps of uh, texts uh, and schools of thought that, that interrogate the material conditions of human life. Marx is not original. He, he, there's plenty of originality in Marx. He's not original in that, okay? What is original and why Marx is often identified as sort of the source for this sort of approach is that Marx is the first to systematize within the conditions of modern industrialization, the kinds of material conditions that he has concerns about. So what emerges in the 20th century with particularly these continental thinkers is, is they, they, they latch onto the method. There's problems in Marx, particularly something we discussed in previous episodes about the sort of more constructive theory that ended up being disastrous. But what they latch onto is this method for interrogating material conditions. Yes, yes, Marx gave them a certain tools and principles and arguments that arm them for that sort of critical inquiry. But what, what I think has happened is that in just sort of linking the critical theorist of Marxism, it's allowed for something like what Scott has to suggest, which is that it's immediately dismissible. Uh, once you affix Marxism to something, plainly that's false, plainly it's a uh, antithetical ideology, antithetical to the gospel in this case. And I'm, I'm not here, I'm not saying all this to defend Marx. I have absolutely no interest in defending uh, Karl Marx on this podcast or <laughs> anybody's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I, I'm not. But but what um, what Marx does though, uh, when you I mean, for those who read him, you know, and I think that's a rarity in itself. But for those who read him, they find that he do, he is perceptive about how human life, particularly commercial life, functions. Even if you disagree with some of the arguments, fine, I, you know, fine, disagree plenty with Marx, right? Disagree all you want. You could disagree with the vast majority of it. Great. But you just can't say that he's not perceptive to certain conditions as he sees them. All right. And you can't say that uh, other critical theorists are not perceptive of material conditions. Right. Just as an example, all right, even though he doesn't specifically call himself that, Foucault's Discipline and Punish is a perceptive book about criminal justice. Okay. You can disagree with major theses. You cannot disagree that it's not perceptive to what, I mean, at the time was... Um, I mean, that's, it's a highly original book at the time. Okay, so I, I, so I think what's happened is that critical theory has been conveniently bundled really tightly to Marxism. And once that's happened, you can do this sort of full-on sweep and just, just dismiss it, right? Because it's not serious and it's, a, it's antithetical to the gospel. But if you actually attend to something like what critical theory says, like if you actually read the critical theorists, what you find is that there's plenty of things uh, that they say that are actually... I wouldn't say that, they, that they're like the gospel. That, that's not a claim I'm going to make, you know, nor is anybody else. But they might, they might say that it has resonances with the gospel. And I'll give you another example. Uh, Horkheimer's essay on marriage is, I mean, it could have been written by, you know, a Roman Catholic, honestly. You know, um, there are plenty, of, I mean, you know, there, there, there are arguments there about the, the importance of conjugal marriage and a family formation that you would think, a late 20th century Vatican II Catholic. So I'm, uh, that's, a, that's a little bit long 
description to say that there's a problem of caricature, as Scott's mentioned, but I, I just wanted to point this out, that's not unique to Marxism to ask questions about material conditions. You know, the early church was asking questions about wealth, among other things. <laughs> so it's not the case that Marxism has a sort of um, domain of material. Now, but if there's, as Scott mentioned, I think the worry is not so much about, again, this is, it's CRT is the proxy, and CT is the proxy for other objections that, that aren't expressed, which is that there are systemic or material issues that create injustices, right? Actual material injustices that have to be redressed. Agreed. That was well said. I should add that um, since we've brought the Catholic Church into the discussion, given my institutional affiliation, I should add that these views do not represent the official position of my institution. Although I I don't mind saying that like Benedict, for example, um, and other Catholic theologians draw quite a bit on insights of critical theory proper, rather unapologetically, um, because critical theory proper offers quite a lot of insight into what happens when you divest public discourse of any kind of purposive rationality, and everything is reduced to, um, I guess to put it in in, uh, Kantian terms, hypothetical imperatives. Everything, everything is reduced to instrumental rationality. Science can tell you, given a certain object, given a certain goal, we, we want to do X, right? Science can tell you how to do X, how to do X more or less efficiently, given certain parameters, certain uh, prescriptions for optimization. Science can tell you all that. Science cannot tell you whether or not you should do X. You won't find should in your physics textbook. You won't. And, then, and that's not a complaint about science. Science doesn't pretend to do this. Yeah, I mean, one of the many sort of confusions uh, around this whole discussion is um, the, the notion that everything that goes on in to critical theory proper, for example, which th- there's, th- I mean, there's not much distinction made between critical theory and critical race theory, which I've always, has always been an irritant to me. But yeah. um, in any case, critical theory proper actually has quite a lot to offer in the way of dismantling modernity's really sort of invasion of how we perceive the world. Which I would add, in many ways, stands in opposition to the Christian worldview and to scripture. Absolutely. (laughs) The modern epistemic framework um, is not compatible with a lot of things that we see about what truth is and Mm. how it's lived and how it's experienced in the Christian Mm. life Mm. um, and what it means to live as embodied creatures, finite creatures in a creation as well. But oftentimes there's like an equivocation between the quote unquote Christian epistemology and a a modernist epistemology, you know, or Baconian epistemology is basically the same thing as Christian epistemology. Um, And so if you think that, then it's going to make sense why you think that critical race theory is an an affront to Christianity when it's really an affront to modernism. (laughs) Mm, Um, But if you've collapsed your Christianity into modernism, then it Mm. makes sense why you would feel that kind of threat. Because they've embraced this idea that that, that um, empirical verifiability is the arbiter of objectivity. So if you so if you sort of question whether I don't know, I mean I don't know how I don't know how how far in the sort of objections get right. Like if 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 you sort of say, well, maybe there's truth that isn't empirically verifiable. I think maybe what people some sort of fundamentalist types hear you saying is that like. I don't know. I mean, does it, it gets translated somehow as like there's no objective truth? I don't know. 
I don't know. But in any case, it's it's primed us for this situation where moral truth claims are not something that can really be argued about. So either you accept a certain account of morality or you don't. And there's no argument to be made about it. And if you sort of question the people in authority, then you're rejecting objective moral truth. I, I don't, I mean, it's, it's really frankly bizarre. It's like a mix between Kantianism plus a heavy dose of Nietzsche <laughs> mixed together. It's, it's very odd. Well, it's, well, what it is is precisely the situation that postmodernists describe. Yep, that's right. Um, and postmodernism is mistaken for this kind of prescriptive project. And in fact, one of critical theories, uh, or I should say critical theorists like Habermas, right? One of their critiques of postmodernism, you know, in the fashion of like uh, Derrida, is that there's no normative project attached to it, right? And I think the account of postmodernism you get, say, in, in evangelical circles is that, you know, they're saying like, there's no truth and this is, this is you know, you should just basically be a nihilist. No, 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 no. The point is, is precisely that postmodernism is a descriptive project. And postmodernism offers a description of where you end up if you embrace modernism in the way that many evangelicals have, right? Uh, I mean, many people now living have. Apparently, I'm not a sociologist. I can't say what percentage exactly, but I will say that, that you know, the situation where uh, there's uh, evidently, you know, alternative facts, like this mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is precisely what the postmodernists said would happen. And you've got all mm -hmm. these people who railed against postmodernism who are now living it out. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. The ironies are so thick, it's hard to even oh. like parse them out anymore. Yeah. And that the answer would be for us to kind of hang us. I think we talked about this before, like uh, get a better hook to hang us on top of the cliff of modernism so that maybe we won't fall down it into its logical conclusion of postmodernism. Like that's just a really bad strategy mm -hmm. <laughs> for Christians in particular. Mm -hmm. I think there's just such there's way more fruitful ways to think outside of the pictures that have held us captive that are not the Christian worldview. Mm. They are in fact, certain epistemic frameworks, um, but we kind of are like fish swimming in water. We can't really see them or distinguish them from Christianity. So I think a more discerning project would be to look at what are those epistemic frameworks? How does critical theory actually poke holes in those things? Mm -hmm. And then think about what are better ways um, that we as Christians can think about what is in more faithful ways, uh, what is truth and what does it mean to live lives that um, pursue godliness and walk humbly um, before our God and are concerned about mercy and justice. And this kind of retrenchment into modernism, right? It, it, the, the result is really, uh, it ends up being this kind of conflation of what the sort of, uh, I guess the, the prevailing view that's on offer with objective truth. So if you re reject the prevailing view, then you reject objective truth. And what you end up with is phrases like, uh, so I, I recently had occasion to read uh, Southern Seminary's accounting of its own history with racism and slavery and so on. And somewhere toward the, be the, uh, the beginning of that document, I want to say around page three, there's this phrase prevailing orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right belief. Yeah. What do you mean prevailing right belief? Like, is it like the wind? Is it a, a, is it a cold front? Um, 
I don't, I, I don't even know what that means. Prevailing orthodoxy is uh, an absurdity. Mm. But, but, what, but that's precisely what you end up with when you, when, when you attempt this kind of retrenchment in the modernism. Because what else do you have to hang on uh, when you have supplanted objective truth with your particular understanding? I mean, you have substituted your, your position for the objective truth. Well, it's power dynamics, which is also why critical race theory is a serious threat to that because it lays bare power dynamics. So right. Makes sense why why it would be quite threatening. It helps, so, and all this helps explain somewhat. I think the fascination and uh, well, now it's like a fixation with worldview analysis and packaging a set of, of perceived threats um, according to some received vocabulary and then once it's packaged up the right way you can then show its obvious incongruence with the christian gospel or with paul's letter to the romans or whatever and then that can be you know but you've, you've now you that's that's been tidied up and you can then put that set that aside you know and that's exactly what's happening with crt it's again nobody I mentioned this before nobody that i have read right within wider evangelicalism certainly not within the southern baptist convention has ever in print or allowed advocated their public endorsement of CRT, you know? So it just lays the question like, well, I mean, what, what's, what's provoked all this, you know? And it's, 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 it's the spectacle of protests. Protests have their own inner logic that are often very complicated. The protest that happened at the White House, at the Congress today is, is different than the protest that happened several months ago in the wake of um, police shootings of young black men but what uh, but coming back to that point about worldview analysis um it's all part of this sort of constellation of features that scott and amber you were discussing i just want to mention that and look while we're on the subject i mean it, it needs it needs to be uh mentioned that this you know the the sort of flashpoint of this right uh purportedly was this resolution nine i think it's seared into my memory because of all this but that resolution nine but look i, I remember i Remember when I first saw the text of it, it was actually after the fact. And I and I sort of asked around and said, like, this is it? This, this is this is it. What it says, what it actually says is that uh, critical race theory may be used only as an analytical tool. You know what only means? Uh, j j if for the record, right? I mean, you all know this, you all are scholars, but I tell my students when you see the word only, particularly in a thesis statement, it's probably the most important word in the sentence. <laughs> right? Uh, only means like at most, maybe not even, maybe not even, but at most. So, so definitely not anything more, but maybe nothing, maybe nothing at all. I mean, so part of the problem here is illiteracy, frankly. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's so hard. That's exactly right. And it's so hard to own up to. That's exactly what a certain kind and style of person will refuse because they've staked their, they've, it's not possible for them anymore to admit error because to admit error is to renounce the gospel. It's all been bundled together in a surety, right? Mm -hmm. The perseverance of the saints is not dependent on our initiative, right? Mm -hmm. Perseverance of the saints is, uh, is God's, you know, so mm. yeah, that's what I shouldn't need saying. But. Some of the, the hermeneutical issue that Scott brought up here is, um, you know, I keep thinking the hermeneutics of paranoia. Yes, that's definitely a problem in modern day society, right? Like that's when critique becomes dogma. And uh, it's, it, it metastasizes into something absurd and even self-contradictory. 
But I keep thinking, you know, the place that I learned the hermeneutics of paranoia actually was worldview weekends <laughs> mm. or, you know, summer camps on, on, you know, the Christian, uh, Christian apologetics or whatever. And, and there's this idea of being, uh, critical thinking, meaning to, to actually do exactly what the hermeneutics of suspicion does and, and peel back the layers and snoop out the heresy and try to find it however you can. Um, so nuance, like words like only, doesn't really matter because we're trying to get at what's really beneath the surface here. And we're trying to like hunt the monsters that lie beneath uh, so that we could bring them to the surface and, you know, publicly shoot them <laughs> um, or hang them in, in our conferences and worldview camps, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the, the hermeneutics of paranoia that I think comes from this place of wanting to preserve uh, wanting to be faithful, wanting to preserve orthodoxy, wanting to, you know, um, protect the truth or whatever those things are, stand, stand for, um, stand for the truth of the gospel, be courageous, be ambassadors, all those things. But it can fall into this paranoia where you actively have to have someone to demonize and you have to be hunting, um, hunting heretics at all times. And, and, that doesn't actually allow you to be a perceptive reader, much less a charitable reader. I mean, forget that because we're not trying to be charitable readers. We're trying to be, um, you know, sin sleuths or, or heresy mm. detectives. Mm. And so you do have to take on this, this critical gaze of paranoia. And I think that's um, definitely a, a problem for our culture in general. We definitely have this kind of fever pitch of paranoia right now. Um, but I think the church should lead out in something so different. Um, and I see us just leading us farther into it, um, albeit in different ways. So how about the common objection that critical race theory denies the sufficiency of scripture, that it promotes a, a victimology over theology and that it actually fosters division and is itself a form of racism? Fact, fiction, fallacy. So right, so this uh, this construes, I think, the sufficiency of scripture in such a way as to exclude uh, any deliverances of general revelation that pose a threat to the established order, right? Uh, so there's nothing about critical race theory that threatens the sufficiency of scripture any more than any other academic discipline, uh, including much of what goes on in the discipline of theology, incidentally, right? Um, so terms like inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture function on a couple of levels. Um, there's a benign theological sense of these terms, and then there's a malignant political sense of these terms. The benign theological sense leaves room for good faith disagreement within certain parameters. Right? By contrast, uh, in the malignant sense, these terms are used to silence dissent. Anyone who disagrees with my interpretation of scripture isn't merely disagreeing with me. They reject God's authorship. Uh, and anyone who draws on general revelation that I dislike rejects the sufficiency of scripture. Of course, in order for this to work, this political sense, right? In order for it to work, the malignant use of these terms poses as the theological use, right? Um, that's how it works. But there's a tell, right? Uh, when, when these terms are used in their political sense, rather than their theological sense, the line between what is and what isn't consistent with scripture's inerrancy and sufficiency is totally arbitrary. 
theologically and philosophically, right? Uh, I mean, so no set of theological or philosophical principles would allow you to successfully predict or retrodict or sort what's permissible from what's not. So one day you're denouncing the atheistic presuppositions of critical race theory, and the next day you're inviting an atheist onto your podcast to explain why Christians need to reject critical race theory due to its atheistic presuppositions. And incidentally, that atheist is an expert neither in critical race theory nor in theology. You use a term like theological liberal to dismiss believers who see God's blessed rage for justice in the words of the prophets. But then you shrug at patriarchists who manipulate the doctrine of the Trinity in frankly bizarre and just clumsy ways. The distinction between what's allowed and what isn't, it always falls in such a way as to allow whatever aligns with your cultural and political agenda, no matter how heterodox, and it disallows whatever doesn't line up with your agenda, no matter how clearly based in scripture. And the common denominator is the extra biblical agenda, right? Inerrancy and sufficiency are just political weapons masquerading as theological principles. Um, and those weapons, it needs to be said, those weapons are used to threaten the livelihood or the professional standing of anyone in the denomination who dissents against that extra biblical agenda. To illustrate that point a little bit, it's always interesting to see what is identified as a source of paranoia, to sort of draw on a previous point, right? Um, so, for example, um, protests are very, very, are, are perceived as very threatening. Specific forms of psychoanalysis apparently are very threatening, despite the um, immense popularity of Enneagram. But, but, but the, the cautions, the, so the, the most forceful cautions of the New Testament are very often glossed. Right. So if we, if we just, let's suppose, let's suppose that um, biblical scholars are right and that the, the most frequent hazard of the Gospels is uh, about wealth and the, and, and the accumulation of wealth. I don't know that there's ever been a baptism, a resolution on wealth. Um, you'll be, you'll be hard pressed to, um, to have anybody question executive compensation or remuneration within ecclesial entities. Those are just, those are, those are categorically off the table in part because of you know, the matter of discretion and of uh, personal privacy or something or, so, or some such thing. But just because those, those, those hazards are sort of off the table, they, they reveal exactly what, why the sources of paranoia become sources of paranoia. Uh, that the threats, say, that the New Testament ha mentions are, are not, they're not really threats when you understand capitalism. Um, when, you under when you understand capitalism, you understand that really, it, that, that, yeah. The New Testament, it doesn't mean what's said, for example, right? Or, the has or, or, or it was just, it's just exaggerated, you know? And I, I don't want to go down that, that, I don't want to take that line. And I mean, I'm, I'm waxing a little rhetorical. But the, but the point about sufficiency and inerrancy, and I'm just trying to explain as one sort of illustration how that kind of gets deployed, particularly by focusing on sources of paranoia and as perceived threats. But when, it, when in truth, there is, there is no threat to Christ's church. There isn't one. Like the gates of Christ's kingdom are unassailable. Indeed, the gates of hell can't stand against it. <laughs> Even the gates of hell. I, the way these people talk about the truth, like it's a, a, you know, a damsel in distress. <laughs> that's totally true the, the truth folks that's, i mean what will the truth do if we don't defend it 
It's universal and objective, but it really he just has a hard time standing on its own two feet. Yeah, totally. If we can't tweet or blog all day, it's going to be it's in it's in deep deep trouble. Mm. That idea though of the truth as this vulnerable thing that needs to be defended fits so well into Kristen Cobes Dumay's book Jesus and John mm. Wayne and this kind of cowboy mentality that we have. It is part of our religious heritage in evangelicalism actually that mm. we're a bunch of cowboys who need to defend the truth. Yep. And, it, and, and it must be said in keeping that, so that book I found to be excellent, I, but I found myself thinking in the course of her, the illustration she lays out and in, in the things she's quoting, uh, where say, you know, leading your family through the world in this secular culture is like leading a platoon through Vietnam. Uh, indeed, it is not. It is nothing like that. It must be said. All right, so our next common objection for fact fiction or fallacy is that in Christianity, our identity is primarily defined in terms of our vertical relationship to God, not primarily in terms of horizontal power dynamics between groups of people. And a lot of times people will say, well, some people will just flat out deny that there is any such thing as systemic injustice, that systems don't sin, you know, individuals sin. And so there, there is none of that going on. Um, and then other times people take a softer approach and say, well, yeah, there's probably some systemic injustice, but really we need to just be focusing on individual discipleship or it, it really um, focusing on trying to correct actual systemic injustice is not something that Christians should focus on for these reasons. What do you guys think? There's a way of doing ethics the last few decades, which has become very popular. And it begins with a sort of question like, like this, um, is it sin to X? And um, when you pose that question, I mean, you can insert anything into the blank, you know, is it sin to gamble? Is it sin? You could put in anything, right? That you can substitute the variable. And uh, that, that is only going to be very limited in its instructiveness. There are plenty of things we do wrong consciously. <laughs> there are things we do wrong unconsciously. This is, I mean, this, this is what, a little bit of what Paul's talking about with the flesh, right? We do wrong consciously, we do wrong unconsciously. That is, we, we do it deliberately and with, without intention. This is basic ethics. Okay, this is like ethics 101, community college. Here's, here's the difference between intention and non-intention. Okay. Um, so that's in place. Is it possible for a group also to act in a way that's collectively wrong? I don't know how you answer that question looking at human history in any other way than, yes, it's possible for collectives to collectively do wrong. And the famous obvious example that's always cited is the Nazi, right? Or, you know, Pol Pot or the Cultural Revolution, whatever, right? Yes, collectives. I mean, then, then it's just a matter of distinction or parsing how many. Like, what is it? What do you get a critical mass of wrongdoing? I mean, I just find that so strained of trying to say that only individuals can do wrong, right? If an individual can do wrong and you get with two other guys and they decide together, we're going to rob a bank. Okay, let's go rob a bank. Like, aren't all the heist movies people together doing it because one person can? If they rob the bank together, have they all done wrong? then there's such a thing as collective responsibility. It's not like they individually did wrong in robbing the bank. And we don't we didn't say like, this guy did it in this particular way and this guy did it another way. No, we just, they all, they all stole, right? 
Okay, so if we if we can just agree, and, and I'm I'm trying I'm being a little bit flippant, but I'm trying to reduce it to absolute simplicity because, for some reason, these very basic precepts are just lost. Okay, so it's possible for collectives to do wrong. And let's suppose just like the individual, it's possible for collective to do wrong intentionally, like deciding to go rob a bank. And it's also it's also possible for them to do something without intention. Right. And within discussion that we're having now about race, the obvious example is about commercial industrial industrial slaving, which gives rise to Jim Crow South and to the sort of 20th century narration, which we've had very instructively over the last two or three decades, where we've been sort of shown how particular policies crafted in particular ways were in some for some people deliberately crafted to harm a particular class of individuals, namely people of um, different skin color. And that the effect once those policies were overturned or legally redressed, it's not like the culture in which those policies were enacted suddenly evaporated. This is what James Baldwin's so good about drawing out. Right. James Baldwin is one of the best at saying, like, look, there were legal changes, but that doesn't really mean anything if we don't have these wider social and, and ecological right, changes. Um, so, yes, individuals do wrong. It's also for, uh, possible for collectives to do wrong. Now, I want to mention here, too, because we're getting like rubbing right up against the concept of complicity. Complicity as a concept in ethics um, is complicated. It's, it can get really complicated and complex really quickly. And I'm not, I don't want to, um, I don't want to in any way insinuate um, that, uh, I don't want, I don't want to sort of overstate uh, complicity here, you know, or, or I don't want to parse that out in any great detail. Um, but, right, it is possible that biases against individuals of color continue to exist unconsciously in a collective, right, both attitudinally in the way like you can see this expressed in the way certain language gets used and also in the way of policy, right? Um, and that still happens, right? Um, a great example, which is just publicized the other day, great, more data coming out about, about this. African-Americans had to wait much longer at polls than white members of population, right? Why, why is that? Well, it, it, raises, it raises interesting questions worth probing, right? I don't know necessarily of anybody that deliberately tried to set up the voting system so that African-Americans would have more time. I, I bet there were some, right? But the more likely explanation is that it's simply part of a system in which African-Americans just simply don't have the same access to uh, voting machines or ballot boxes that, that, that compared to white citizens. Um, so that's the, that's the beginning how I sort of frame up um, a response, the problem of individual sin versus collective sin. Um, and that what, what, particularly for injustices, I mean, injustices, injustice is, a, is, of course, as Scott said several times, the result of human iniquity and human sin, human corruption, all right, the overturning of what is right, the wronging of another, of another person, not giving them their due, right? So the effect of sin is injustice, right? Uh, how, do, how are injustices rectified? Well, that's right there in the term. You write them, right? The correct injustice is to right a wrong. It's as simple as that. That's a biblical command, right? It's just, it's not possible to read the Bible and think that that's not a command. He who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. It's as clear as day. That's a precept right there, black and white letter of the New Testament. So, um, and as we talked about in the previous episode, doing justice is the bare minimum, 
right? I mean, that's just the minimum. When uh, elsewhere, it's, it's quite clear that, you know, to love another is to put them above, their interests above our own. In keeping with everything that Matthew's noted, I, I think to acknowledge that there's uh, such a thing as systemic injustice. Um, and just as a matter of fact, I think that this acknowledgement has come reluctantly. But in any case, to acknowledge that systemic injustice exists and say, well, we should really focus on these other things is, is to say, it, it, namely, bringing people to saving knowledge of Christ is essentially to say, uh, well, let's just let sin abound so that grace can abound more. Mm-hmm. The way that you address institutional injustice is you just change the institutions. But, I mean, what, what do we do? Are we are trying to um, disciple people into becoming better people so that they can then change the institutions? Because the institutions aren't going to change unless you just change them. That's what you do. You just change them. That's, that's it. To further elaborate on uh, what Matthew points out, I, I think um, some folks uh, in white evangelicalism are fond of talking about natural and logical consequences of our actions. They're less eager, uh, you know, for example, you got to live with the natural and logical consequences of your actions. They're less eager to acknowledge the ways in which African-Americans, for example, uh, have been living with the natural and logical consequences of sins committed against their ancestors. Um, because as, as we will all agree, sin has consequences, right? Um, and, and sometimes those consequences affect people against whom injustices have been done. Um, and as Matthew says, the, 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 the way to address it is to right the wrong. Um, and as Matthew says, collective moral agency and responsibility, particularly intergenerationally, is extremely complicated. But I will say that I think some folks in this conversation unhelpfully conflate guilt and indebtedness Right. So it's one thing to say that I'm responsible for sins that were committed before my birth, like actually responsible for those sins uh, by virtue of my membership in a certain group. It's another matter entirely to say that by virtue of my membership in a certain group, I've inherited things that don't rightfully belong to me. And I'm obligated to do whatever I possibly can to make that right. And if I don't, then I am morally responsible, not for the original taking but for my unwillingness to divest myself mm-hmm. of that which I ought not to have inherited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Coley, that reminds me of uh, one of the examples that you brought up on uh, our podcast when you talked about that game of pickup basketball in which, you know, what if one team has basically been sort of like roughhousing the entire time and uh, at halftime you decide to have refs and all this but you don't correct the fact that there's this major inequitable lead that one team has. And given what you just described, I wonder if maybe a comparable sort of example of that is if, what if somebody joined the pickup game late and found out that they had just joined a team that is up by 40 because of essentially cheating, you know, these sorts of things. And what do you do in that sort of situation? You're not responsible in that sort of complicit way where you, you weren't part of the game, right? But now you are, and now you know that you're up by 40 because of some inequitable roughhousing. You're totally right to, to point to that sort of wrinkle. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's helpful up to a point. Um, but of course, uh, when it, comes to uh, how to right these wrongs in a sort of modern liberal democracy with uh, mm-hmm. you know, really complicated uh, economic factors 
um, it's of course, it's not as simple as, you know, a simple transfer of wealth from like who got the stuff to who it was taken naturally. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I noticed that complications around how restitution ought to be made. Uh, that's another area where people say, well, I mean, who can figure it out? Mm. I mean, I mean, it, is it complicated? Of course, but I mean, we put a guy on the moon, mm. yeah. you know, and, and the, the fact that it's complicated is not a reason to not even make an effort. Yes, it's complicated, but we, we can make the effort. There are some plausible proposals mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. I really like what you were saying about um, guilt and responsibility in the sense that if I become made aware of something that um, has been handed down to me by virtue of the group that, I, that mm. I'm born into, and I'm made aware of a sin, and yet I do not seek to somehow right that wrong in, by whatever means I possibly can, um, that it's actually, that that's actually my sin. Um, and Kierkegaard actually says um, that when you, for every, every day, every moment that you have been made aware of a sin, but you don't repent of it, that is a new sin. Mm-hmm. Like that is a sin in and of itself. That's a new, so every moment that sin keeps getting compounded more and more and more by virtue of your refusal to repent of it. And you actually increase the multitude of sins by doing that. Yeah, I think, yeah. And, and um, I think some folks who are, if I may say so, in that situation, right, where they are not eager to, to I mean, like genuine repentance comes with an, I just, I don't see how it can be extricated from an overwhelming sense that something must be done, whatever can be done must be done to correct the situation. And yet what we see is folks respond to these kinds of concerns based on historical fact in living memory. I mean, we're redlining was living memory, right? I mean, by the time redlining was outlawed, Bob Dylan was almost 40. <laughs> and that dude's like still putting out albums. <laughs> yeah. Right? Can't speak to their folly. I have no idea. But, but um, the, the, the sort of... Uh, reaction to these concerns is, well, I, I, you know, I favor limited government. Right. That's exactly right. Oh, you do. A couple of things there, right? One is that how convenient Mm -hmm. once the transfer of wealth has taken place now, now we want limited government. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other is that uh, the notion of, of sort of limited government is based, you know, in theory of governance called libertarianism. And on the libertarian view, the, the principal function of governance, at least in the domestic context, tech, is to uh, secure property. Mm-hmm. So uh, libertarians should be at the front of the line of people demanding that property rights be respected, including mm-hmm. restitution made for wealth mm-hmm. that's been transferred mm-hmm. from all taxpayers, including people of color, to a small subset of the population the white folks who benefited from the FHA's programs for decades. And on that basis, we're able to accrue home equity, which is the way that people transfer wealth from one generation to the next mm-hmm. in the United States. That's it. I don't care what Dave Ramsey says. Yeah, and it's, it's, so, and it's so common to sort of write libertarianism right on to Romans 13. I, I see it all the time. Um, Paul was a libertarian, essentially. Never, never mind the actual political principles and theological principles being deployed in Romans 13 as 
a point of, as the discourse of continuity with Romans 12, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, which needs saying. And I'll, I'll say drawing the point to, together too with um, issues about race and guilt and tying off a point I mentioned earlier. Often what I hear folks say in response to a claim that there's such a thing as systemic racism is that they're, of course, that they're not racist. And mm. so far as I know, just about everybody, unless they, hold, they actually have a rebel flag or something on their flagpole, they don't, they don't, they're not like, they don't believe they're racist. Nobody wants to be called racist. Nobody wants to be believed racist. Mm -hmm. It's one of the worst possible monikers you can, that can be applied to you. I get that. I totally get attitudinal opposition to being called a racist, right? Mm -hmm. when, when I say that there's such a thing as systemic racism, I'm not saying that you are attitudinally racist. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know what you believe inside. Mm -hmm. I'm not even permitted on the basis of my Christian commitments to make a judgment about your inner life. Mm -hmm. Right. All I can say is based on the features, many of which Scott just mentioned as examples, based on the features available to us for observation, it appears that there's a preponderance of evidence mm -hmm. that one particular class of individuals, namely African-Americans have been um, disenfranchised for about 250 years. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, it, and that their stake has, in life has been very, very difficult, right, to say the least. And to say that they're, and I use examples in, in my Christian ethics lecture, I talk about examples like capital or criminal justice and education, because those are obvious, and housing is another one, obvious examples where there's so much evidence mm. of racial bias within the system, right? Mm -hmm. We could go down, try to delineate where intentions are to kind of go back to a different point, but that's not the issue. We're just saying it, right? Mm -hmm. With, it's baked right in the system. Mm -hmm. And what we can do is we can ask questions about how systems work, how institutions work, how conventions are operative, right? That might speak to attitudes in important ways, right? Mm -hmm. That's as far as I want, to, I want to take that point, but I'm not mm -hmm. saying, right? And no one else is saying that when, there's, when we see systemic racism, that you, 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 and you are all racist, right? Now there is, I'm, I, I recognize that there is a very, um, there's, a, there's a more extreme kind of rhetoric um, surrounding certain like anti-racist arguments here that are that are sort of superimposing motive onto a class of white citizens. I don't want to I don't want to get into that. I don't think that's right to attribute motive, but I understand. But I think that's mostly rhetorical from that point of view. Actually, it's not really meant to sort of say that you actually have that. So it's more illicit uh, action. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to, I wanted to mention this that make that distinction about guilt and systemic racism. Um, that's why I think a lot of people just don't want to be called racist. And so therefore don't want to accept there's such a thing as systemic racism. Right. So, and yeah, and in the notion of institutional racism is not, it has nothing to do with you or your attitude or any person. Exactly right. The exactly right. Rules are, are, are <laughs> uh, create uh, disparate outcomes that break down along the lines of race. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I will say that there's, there's one uh, claim that critical race theorists often make that I do think I'll, I'll just speak to the, my co-religionists that I think white Christians need to wrestle with. Mm. And that is this. If you refuse to acknowledge, for whatever reason, whether it's because you're misunderstanding the claim or, or whatever, right? But if you refuse to acknowledge that, there, that we have, at the very least, the vestiges in our society of uh, institutional racism, if you refuse to acknowledge that, then what do you think explains the disparities that we see? <laughs> because when you've got a vacuum of explanation there historically, mm -hmm. uh, something's going to fill that vacuum in the way of explanation, mm -hmm. right? I, wh why do you think 
that the median white family has $134,000 in wealth and the median black family has $11,000 in wealth. Why do you think that's the case? If you don't think there's any institutional racism, how do you explain that? I mean, what I've heard commonly is just an appeal to merit and hard work and industriousness and all those sorts of things, like a meritocracy kind of thing. And, and so what has entered the explanatory vacuum there is racism. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. That's, it has to be called what it is. So what about this idea that really, if a Christian were to embrace critical race theory, that it's just a slippery slope and that inevitably, if you move towards the paradigm of critical theory as a solution to racism or sexism, that you're inevitably going to sort of ditch a biblical understanding of gender, gender identity, gender roles, sexual orientation, etc. Fact, fiction, or fallacy on this idea of this inevitable slippery slope? A uh, couple, couple points briefly. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know of, of uh, so there's one thing about sort of solutions and then another point about this slippery slope, right, that gets into this kind of world, worldview stuff. So uh, first point about critical theories or critical race theory solutions. I don't know of any Christian, any right-thinking Christian who sees critical race theory as a solution to anything, right? Critical race theory is a, has a diagnostic element and a prescriptive element. It's got a descriptive element and a normative element, right? Christians embrace Christian prescriptions. We might use any number of diagnostic methods, one of which might be critical race theory, perhaps. To this point about the slippery slope and, and the, you know, worldview business. Uh, yeah, so, so STEM, right? Uh, science, technology, engineering, medicine is rooted in what's called methodological natural, to take an example, right? Is, is rooted in methodological naturalism which rejects the possibility of supernatural agency. Uh, should we reject modern medicine, telecommunication, infrastructure? Th this is a totally bogus objection to anything ever. Setting aside you know, a political agenda, I don't even understand the complaint, I really don't. The whole like, well, hey, uh, this theory is based on suppositions that are at odds with the metaphysical truth claims of Christianity. So what, w what's your point? Does it make any true observations? If so, let's acknowledge that. All truth is God's truth, yeah? Regardless of who discovers it or how. So nonsense. All right, so one last question for uh, fact fiction or fallacy. I see this fairly frequently. People are just like, man, just preach the gospel. Like forget about all of this stuff. If we just care about introducing people to Jesus, um, and we're just consistent in preaching, you know, the centrality of the gospel, then uh, we won't get caught up in all these things. And that's where our focus needs to lie. What do you think? All faithful Christians should continue to embody and proclaim the gospel in all that they do. I hope that those who believe and live this gospel will see that there are, <laughs> that there are goods worth doing on behalf of our fellow human beings. I, I, that is an obvious message of the New Testament. And, I, and it's gotten, I've gotten so frustrated with this that I, I don't know how else to explain it except that it's just simply willful, right? Just not wanting to see what the New Testament says. I, I don't at this point have any other explanation. And I, 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 if there's a little bit of frustration in my voice, it's because I just don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand how. 
someone who believes the gospel which Christ has handed down to his church, could see that the only thing that could possibly be important for their life is the, the continual proclamation. Yes, it is the most important thing that you can do. Proclaim the risen Christ. Yes. No, no faithful Christian I know of could possibly object. But that's also the very message which, is, which should propel a person into the world to be the extension of Christ's hands in the world, right? And we have a rich theological heritage to draw on to, um, to outline that in great detail, right? It doesn't need to be a bifurcation. Keep preaching the gospel. But if you're preaching a gospel that doesn't actually get people out into the world to love their fellow human beings, then I don't know what gospel you're preaching. I just don't. My pastor frequently says that the Great Commission and the Great Commandment go together. Uh, that it's not one for the other. They're, they're, they're brought together. And I think about that a lot with James in James 2, where he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Uh, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs or these material conditions, what good is it in the same way faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action is dead. Um, so this kind of Gnostic idea of just soul winning yeah. um, is, is very contrary to even historical Christianity. Yeah. Um, and you, can't, you just can't root that in scripture anywhere. If we can separate informing people of the of the gospel message from living out the gospel message and uh, having separated them the one that takes priority is just the information bit i just i i marvel at the inefficiency how god has set all of this up right i mean surely god could do some sort of broadcast and just let everyone know and then just and then we would all just be raptured Immediately, uh, upon having formed the correct propositional belief, but that isn't how God has done it. Uh, so it must be that God is up to something. It, it must be that this whole framework is wrong, right? <laughs> uh, uh, that I, that we can separate the two, and and the one takes priority. And of course, they know that that's wrong. Uh, the people who say this, which is why they always say, just preach the gospel right after they've just finished making some political statement. Hmm. Yeah, it's often a red herring. You know, nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk about the gospel in terms of information transfer, um, which has with it carries with it a conception of truth as cognitive and not transformative. Mm. Uh, but then you run into trouble when you talk about things like the incarnation and a whole host of other whole host of other things. And indeed, never mind that no one's interested in hearing what you have to say because of how you live your life. I mean, if the only enticement was to make the gospel attractive, you would think that would be enough. As it happens, it's not. But Well, Dr. Arbo and Dr. Coley, this has been wonderful to have you both back on again and to have you on the same pod together. This has been really helpful to think through what critical race theory really is all about and also to clarify uh, and, and clear up some misconceptions about it. So really appreciate having both of you on today. Yeah, it was a blast. It was a pleasure. Thank you guys so much.
you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.